0: I was on the hey all, greetings from the Recording Closet. I hope you all have had some wonderful adventures so far this year. I'm back from a great visit to Nepal, working with the amazing team at the Kumbu Climbing Center. Thanks again to Conrad Anchor and Jenny Low Anchor, and Pete Athens for the invite. Y'all can look back to episode one to the story of their mission, And stay tuned for some updates on projects here on the podcast. Anyway, happy now to tap back to conversation with Banff Award-winning filmmaker Jake Norton. So happy that I reached out to Jake after finishing some work for Aspen Mountain Rescue in Colorado last fall. And ever so grateful to Jake that he made time for me at his office at Mountain World Productions. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Born from our experiences as explorers. And forged by a commitment to the-, the positive change we want to see in the world. This is the Adventure Activist Podcast.
1: So I knew guiding really spoke to me. I loved how it got me out into these new places, but I, I didn't know exactly what route I would take through the mountains, but I knew those were going to be an integral part of my life and career. i got to make this meaningful. I've got to have a reason to tell my daughter that I'm gone more than just these pretty selfish reasons of, oh, I need a paycheck, sweetie, so I'm going to go walk under teetering seracs for two months. In South Asia, with that cyclic version of time, it, things aren't quite as pressing, and, and this life in at a 30,000-foot level is but one of many, and the idea is to be the best person you can be not a necessarily accumulate as much stuff as you can seeing these places preserving some of what they are before they change completely is is really important in telling the stories of of these remote areas and and the things that we stand to lose if if we don't uh don't wake up to some of the issues facing
0: our world welcome to the adventure activist podcast i'm your host terry o'connor This is a place for accomplished athletes, inspiring adventurers, and influential activists to share their journeys and life discoveries. Through their stories, we hope to deconstruct how we all can add more meaningful value to the world and do some good with our passion for adventure. This is episode seven with Jake Norton. As a climber and guide, Jake has set foot on many of the highest points on earth. And as a filmmaker, He has made some insightful films about mountain culture and environment recently culminating in his banff award-winning film holy unholy river a collaboration with national geographics pete mcbride about the unique culture and predicament of india's sacred ganges river in the hour ahead we talk about his path from finding a life of adventure climbing in the mountains to then using his expeditions as a means to get back to the people places and cultures he loved and wanted to interact with. In our conversation, we visit Uganda, Nepal, and India, and touch on the inspiration for stories he would tell in photo and film. We find time to talk culture and have an engaging discussion of what it is to live a meaningful life from a South Asian perspective and how that can inform our own life choices. In the end, Jake offers some advice for the next generation of adventure storytellers out there enjoy. Jake Norton, thanks for the invite to your office, man. I'm having a, uh, I'm having office envy. This place is incredible. Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool, funky it's, but cool. Yeah, I mean, how many how many years worth of expedition artifact do we have here, I guess? How many um, years do you think? primarily from the Himalaya it looks like here in the office yeah mostly from the Himalaya I've got all these old books were collected by my great
1: uncle Duke Watson out in uh, out in Seattle and uh, oh, and he passed them on to me he actually did some first ascents in the pickets and random stuff with Fred Becky back in the day oh really and, okay yeah yeah and then we've got uh yeah there's um, old oxygen bottles from the 60s and and uh, Tent pole from 1933, and so kind of some cool old stuff, all all dragged down. Yeah,
0: so I'm going to have to assume that that is uh, what started to plant the seed a little bit for you for mountain life and exploration. Of yeah, right?
1: yeah, definitely. You know, I think like so many of us, you know, my portal to this world that was far outside of my norm in massachusetts was national Geographic, uh-huh. and you know i think we all did that i couldn't read the articles but i could sure look at the pictures and, <laughs> yeah. and dream a lot and then my great uncle you know would share stories of his adventures and and that just um you know eventually got me to really want to travel to these places and and Climbing ended up being the vehicle that started getting me there.
0: So was your great uncle a, a climber, an explorer, or just traveler? What a little, little bit more about Yeah, he
1: was he was a neat guy. Uh Duke Watson, he was um a businessman by by trade, um, but he was tenth mountain division, uh um oh, wow. led the troops in the Apennines and uh, yeah, got eviscerated by a mortar round and dragged himself back to camp and tough, tough guy and then uh, ended up finding his way to Seattle uh, helped found Crystal Mountain back in the day with oh, Ed wow, Lake really? yeah, really? yeah, yeah and, and uh and worked actually in the um, wood and paper industry, and um, but but loved the mountains and got out and did a ton of great climbs. Uh, first ascent of uh, West Fury back in gosh nineteen forty something, and yeah. um, but then his his real calling was uh, the old fur trapper routes, and so he solo retraced I think fifteen thousand miles of fur trapper roots in uh, the Northwest Yukon, Northwest territories over over his lifetime. Wow.
0: So when did you first meet him? Did you guys overlap then?
1: Yeah, he just passed away at 92 a few years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, so I knew him since I was a little kid and kind of the legend beforehand. And then when I got into climbing, he, um, he was the one who really opened my eyes to a lot of the kind of forgotten stories, uh, of, of climbing, you know, he knew Tom Hornbein and Willie unsold really well. Mm -hmm. So he introduced me to their story and, um, yeah, lots of, lots of hidden chapters that he opened my eyes to.
0: So when did you first kind of start cutting your teeth in the mountains?
1: Yeah. You know, I I got into climbing. I was one of those kids who traditional sports didn't, um, didn't really suit me very well. So I, um, was hunting for other things and my dad worked for new balance at the time and they ended up, uh, he knew Lou Whitaker from his time at K2 years okay. ago. And Lou had just come back from Everest in 84. And um, the first American ascent of the north side of Everest. And I got to know him and I, was, I knew nothing about climbing at that point. And, you know, that opened my eyes to, wow, there's this whole other world that I never had thought about before. And and uh, so my dad... Saw that I was interested and thought, "Hey, maybe this will be up his alley." And and it really took. So we climbed Rainier when I was twelve and eighty six, oh, wow. and and then one thing it kind of took off from there. Did you
0: uh, keep up with it through college, or did you go to college then? Like, did you yeah, continue to cultivate the the interest a little bit more
1: yeah yeah you know it really it kind of went along um at at a marginal level as i was living in new england not that there's not great climbing there but i didn't know many climbers um in in the 80s early 90s in that area so my dad and i would go up and climb with a guy you probably know nick yardley an old mm-hmm. friend up in north conway and uh and then go on some international trips. But then when I got to college, it really started growing a lot more. Um, I went to Colorado College down in the Springs and that summer decided I wasn't going to go back and work on an old farm I'd always worked on in Massachusetts. So uh, applied for a job guiding on Rainier for summer and got it. And
0: Right, yeah, because of that initial experience, and obviously your great uncle being there and having yeah. guided, or having climbed with RMI, I imagine the first time around back in '80, right? Yeah, 12. yeah, wow,
1: yeah, yeah. Okay. So a, a long, long history with that mountain. It's still yeah. one of my favorites.
0: Were you kind of shocked when you got that job actually at the time?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> I, I always laugh. You know, if I were to apply today with the skills I had then, there's yeah. no way I could have been hired. And but, but at the same time, I really respect the way that. Rainier mountaineering a very different system than is more common today, but at that time it was a really good system that that developed guides that could guide well on Mount Rainier, maybe not on El Cap or something else, yeah. but it, it it was really a very uh, very good niche apprenticeship system that that functioned
0: very well. Right, and then was it shortly thereafter that it became? I mean, did you just become so engrossed with it at that point? Like, I mean, I think for some people they get introduced to a lifestyle the the type of work being in the mountain environment all the time, and then it just clicks to them. And they're like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah, yeah, I really did. And I didn't know for sure what, you know, what avenue I would take through all of this, but I knew, I knew that guiding really you know really touched a a spot in me that i liked i really enjoyed not just climbing but bringing people into this environment that meant so much to me and Mm -hmm. people who maybe couldn't access it otherwise for lack of skills or whatever and so i knew guiding really spoke to me i loved how it got me out into these new places Mm -hmm. but i I didn't know exactly what route i would take through the mountains but i knew those were going to be an integral part of my life and career
0: Later in our conversation, I asked Jake about his first trip to the Himalaya, and he expands on how, philosophically, that cultural immersion became an inflection point that informed his future career.
1: Yeah, you know, really my my first trip to the big mountains, to the Himalaya, was uh, before I started guiding. It was my senior year in high school, oh, okay. senior project, so we had a, kind of a month over spring break. We were able to embark on a project if we chose to, and I had always dreamt of going to Nepal to see the mountains. I didn't really know much about it, aside from there were really big lumps of snow and rock there. <laughs> and uh, so we went to the Langtang Valley uh, that oh, year, and, and I remember very vividly vividly the breaking through the clouds on the flight from Bangkok to Kathmandu and you know seeing the city unfold beneath me and just going holy shit you know, we're, <laughs> this is otherworldly I it just hadn't I hadn't been able to conceptualize what Nepal was and and what it was beyond the mountains and and so from that point on i really became enthralled with and fascinated by nepali life and culture and i wanted to understand all right who are these people who who live in these mountains that for most of us it's difficult just to visit and this is home for them and and the culture the religion the history was so foreign to me and yet so welcoming at the same time Mm -hmm. and oddly familiar, even though it couldn't have been more different than what I grew up so with. Why,
0: why do you think so? Like why? Um, I mean, certainly there's a subset that just go there and it's the physical challenge, of the mountains, and then that's it. Um, you mentioned before the National Geographic. You mentioned before your, your great uncle. I mean, do you think it was it was the greater storytelling about that culture and the allure of the culture that kind of mystified you to agree? Or is that you yeah you from?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's a, a big part of it. I think, mm. you know, there's certainly that, you know, I won't, won't pretend there wasn't an I- idealism or romanticism, yeah. you know, you get there and, and you see only the good or some people only see the bad. I saw yeah. only the good at the start, but there was, there was really a dichotomy that I still, see in Nepal that I think a lot of people do in in many places in the developing world that, that reflects interestingly on our society and what we come from and where we have in relative terms so much. We have everything we could possibly want and then some and yet for many of us our days are filled with with angst and a lot of unhappiness and and you go to a place like Nepal and not to romanticize it certainly they your average nepali subsistence farmer has plenty of tough days but by and large i would say their happiness quotient is is probably higher than the average person in manhattan or in evergreen and and that fascinates me you know how 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 we can in the U S have so much and yet have so little and they can have so little and have so much. And, and so I think that question really resonated with me. And is that, you know, is that an aspect of faith isn't an aspect for us of affluence and kind Mm -hmm. of the affluenza, so to speak, or, so I think those were really the questions that started bouncing around in my head as I visited with families who again had compared to me had nothing and yet had everything.
0: I mean, did you have that insight that early on when you were there at that senior project? Can you think of something that happened in the Langtang at that time that kind of gave you an insight?
1: Yeah, you know, the the one thing, uh, so a family that I remain close with, um, we actually just visited last spring with my kids, took them to their village. A Tamang family from the district of Rasua from, if you know the the valley, the Trusuli Valley that separates Tong and Ganesh. They were from a small town on the west side over in the foothills of the Ganeshi Mall, and they were all our porters on the trip. And again, I was so green with Nepal. I didn't know how the economy worked. We didn't really know anything about, about Nepal aside from where it was. And, and again, seeing this, this family, so it was a dad, uh, the three sons, and then some cousins who again were were dirt poor i mean they they had and still have very 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 little and yet there was a closeness and a bond and a and a a kind of deep profound just contentment Mm -hmm. uh you know again trying not to idealize them but there there was a contentment that i hadn't seen much in my experience in the west and um and that really struck me and and made me wanna understand more and then and then also just the the amazing weave that is the nepali interface of culture and religion and landscape and philosophy and history um just really really touched me deeply and made me wanna understand more and and see what i could learn it's hyper
0: stimulating i mean it's yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it hits you on all levels yeah between the congestion of Kathmandu to the beauty of the high himalaya to just the sanctity of of the village life and then to see their hardship and their load carries and then just the the giggles and the laughter through all that yeah i mean for me it's that was probably my first impact like man these people are it's just smiling through some serious hardship. Yeah. And then the, you know, the, the K Garnet lifestyle, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which for those who don't, have been to Nepal, it's kind of right. like their way of saying, ah, well, you know, it's the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, their ability to brush off just everything. Uh, it's, yeah, it's really, it does make you question, well, certainly what you're complaining about back home and what yeah. you're worrying about back
1: home. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think, you know, the K. Garnet lifestyle, I've always (laughs) thought about that as well. And I think without knowing it, that was something that I hadn't put my finger on yet that, Mm. that did strike me that first trip. And now looking back, having gotten to know Nepal a lot better and studied a lot more, you know, I really feel so much of that is... The fundamental difference between most of South Asia and the West that strikes people either positively or negatively comes down to this concept of time where we're So linear everything, you know, we've got one life to live You got to make as much money buy buy the biggest house so on and so forth go to the best schools and and yet in South Asia with that cyclic version of time things aren't quite as pressing and and this life in at a 30,000 foot level is but one of many and the idea is to be the best person you can be not a necessarily accumulate as much stuff as you can and yeah and and i think that's both a blessing and a curse for nepal i mean i saw it after the earthquake where on the blessing side people were able to just say hey kegarne you know earthquakes happen
0: lack of emotional distress as much as you would yeah. think would be commensurate with the level of Catastrophe that just occurred.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember talking days after the earthquake to Dave Morton and Tom A and and saying, you know, how are people holding up? And he said, you know, it's it's classic. You know, people their houses are gone, and they're like, oh, Dave, die! I lost everything. You want some tea? <laughs> yeah. And they'd sit down and have tea in the pile of rubble, and yeah. and so I think yeah. that's you know that's the blessing side of it, yeah. but it's also can be a curse, and that 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 fatalism, that lack of linear time concept culturally can, can hog tie people and, and perhaps a
0: little bit of lack of agency. Yeah. Um, just because they just uh oh that's just my fate.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is what it is. Okay.
0: Yeah. K Garnet. Let's yeah. go on. It's interesting that, that uh addresses a little bit just, just my conversation the other day with um Peter Hackett about uh, some of his experiences early on, even when people were facing death and like his sense of urgency to try to do something treatment wise or help them and so many of them were just complacent because yeah. they they just realized that, well, you know what? In two days, it's actually an auspicious day to die, so that's right. eh, my time. Yeah, yeah. And, and then yeah.
1: and there's, there's a frustration, certainly, in that, but there's such an intense beauty in that, too, I think. You know, that uh, being able to accept the challenges that life throws at us out of the blue without wanting to run and blame someone. And again, you know, it's easy to idealize and that's, you know, people certainly have their struggles and their, their pain points throughout Nepal. But I think it's, there's a lot of aspects of South Asian philosophy and thought that, that we could really do with incorporating in, in our own mindsets.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, it's important to mention that it, it does, there is this romantic draw to kind of help us find answers or to help, you know, calm us with our anxieties we have here. But then we realize sometimes we go over there with our own objectives. Right. <laughs> and then when those objectives aren't met, then we see this kind of clash. Yeah. It, and that's, uh, it's really in, intriguing. It's the exact reason why it's captivating to go there, but it's the exact reason why people with plans and projects get really frustrated. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting
0: to see that. I mean, I haven't gone on as many expeditions as you as you have, but it's really interesting to see those individuals from Western culture that can embrace that and embrace it as actually part of the trip. Right. And the other ones that are absolutely driven just crazy by it. Yeah. And it's just crazy making. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. And I, and I, I,
1: I kind I love seeing both aspects of that when I, you know, when I take people over, I always, I always, you know, give them that caveat. I'm like, you know, this is our itinerary. This is our schedule. We're, supposed to be driving to Siabru tomorrow, yeah. but you know, it could take five hours. It might not happen until Thursday. Who knows? You know? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but let's just enjoy let's see, whatever yeah, comes it's... at us.
0: So how how big of a gap of time was there then from um do so you were was a senior in high school? Yeah, so ninety two, spring of ninety two until you had the opportunity to go back um as a as a guide then was that the next Uh, time or was there a a time
1: yeah so after that first trip again Nepal had hooked me and fascinated me and I I didn't know why but I knew I needed you know in in a real deep sense I needed to know more and so first thing I did my first month of school in Colorado was go to the abroad office and, and figure out all right how do I get back for a long period of time and and learn more and so I went my sophomore, fall, sophomore year, uh, fall semester, for, um, and ended up staying a bit longer. So I was there for about six months in 93, 94, studying history, culture, language, and um, and then living there for a couple months after and uh, teaching English and doing various things in the valley.
0: All in Kathmandu?
1: Uh, no, I um, mainly in Kathmandu. We had a village homestay for five weeks in Kavri Palanchok, so not far from Kathmandu, but... Um, years away in terms of development. It was a very rural village. And then uh, also spent three weeks up in the Khumbu. Um, that was the time when the Nepali government was really kind of playing around with how do we protect the mountain a little bit the sagarmatha pollution control Mm -hmm. committee had just been established and they were really trying to protect the valley protect culture but allow for growth and so i was looking at how some of their new regulations and governmental regulations were affecting livelihoods up there
0: right yeah and then how did you feel after all that i guess going back as a guide for the first time what was your first trip as a guide then
1: Uh, let's see. First trip as a guide would have been uh, to show you in
0: 97. Okay. Yeah. I imagine there were some parts that were exciting because you're a young guide and I got this opportunity to go climb an 8,000 meter
1: peak. Yeah.
0: But was there a component that seemed a little disappointing to you too as a guide? Because you, you obviously vested all this time when you're younger and undergraduate and you're actually really immersed in the culture. And then now you're on this, you're on an agenda. You have an itinerary. And I'm sure there was even a sheet of paper that said what we're planning on doing on day one, day five, day 10. Yeah. Was that a tough thing for you to reconcile on your first trip as a guide there?
1: Yeah, definitely was. Um, you know, cause for me, Nepal had become so much more than the mountains and, you know, not that I didn't still care and don't still care about climbing these peaks and, but really, more than anything else, the mountains had become an excuse for me to get back to the people, places, and cultures that I loved and wanted to interact with. And often when you're guiding, you know, you don't really fully control the narrative. And so I wanted my clients to to be as fascinated by it as I was and really engage. I'm like, no, let's go down this cool alley in Kathmandu. And often they'd be like, Oh, I don't, you know, there's poop everywhere. I could get sick down there. Yeah. 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 And and I'd be like, no, it's safe. This, you know, come on, let's just embrace it. And, and so I had to leave some of that, um, at the door and learn how to do that while still. Encouraging people to get out of their comfort zone and see beyond—it's oh, just a big, busy, smelly city—or you know, this is just a different world. I'm here for the mountains. I'm going to walk through it without really looking, and and so finding that balance was was definitely a and and, and continues to be a tough process for me. Yeah, I,
0: I mean, it is a problem. Was there a definite inflection point though with your? So I imagine there were multiple trips to the Himalaya, yeah, kind of guiding. But I mean, did you? Was it a culmination of trips of having to deal with that kind of conflict with objective of your clients and, you know, having obviously your clients' objectives, their needs and wishes and what the weather and the mountain dictated versus what you wanted with your experience with the culture? Um, was there, can you remember, like, was there kind of like an inflection point in your career where you're like, I got to, I got to change the needle on the compass here just a little bit yeah, and start to think about how you could leverage... Your, you know, your your CV, so to speak, and your your body of experience to do something maybe just a little bit different.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I'd had a little taste of that on my first Everest trip in '99. That was the first Mallory okay. and Irvine research yeah. expedition, and that was real eye opening to me because I was like, God, we can be on. Not just a big mountain on the biggest on Everest where usually the sole motivation is to summit and be there with that not even really being much of a thought in our mind. So being on a mountain with a totally different reason for being there was was really eye-opening to me because I Mm. hadn't given that a heck of a lot of thought before. Um, But really the one big inflection point came the next year. I was back on Cho U again, my second time guiding there and a big commercial group, great people, great clients. But I remember I was uh, cooking for everyone up at, I think it was high camp or camp two. And there's um, beautiful sunset, you know, just spectacular where you're seeing the the shadows of the peaks off in the distance, stretching against the horizon. And it, it was just stunning. And, And I remember calling everyone saying, guys, come on, you know, open up your tents, look out, you know, this, this is what we're here for. And almost in unison, everyone said, we're, we're here for summits, not for sunsets. And, and I was just like, gosh, you know, no, you know, I don't begrudge them. Uh, That was their prerogative and their decision. But for me, I was like, gosh, you know, I don't want to be spending all this time in these glorious places with People who aren't there for the same reasons I am again, nothing against them, but I needed to find more alignment. So that was, that was a real decision point for me where I decided to stop doing the, the big guided trips and, and really focus more on if I'm going to go to these mountains, I'm going to do small groups, custom trips and make sure from the outset that people are there for the reasons that that really resonate with me and mountains can be a part of that, but that's not going to be the sole purpose. Yeah.
0: And I mean, I imagine part of that calculation is the confidence knowing that this is not your first rodeo. I mean, like you've, you now have experience, you've put in the hard work. Right. Know, um, and so there's probably some leverage right? Yeah, just like someone invests in themselves. You know, mm-hmm. there's like leverage, whether it be financial or experientially, but I think, God, there, there must have been some initial kind of emotional impact of that, too, because you're just coming off the heels of the 99 expedition where, you know, Conrad and the rest of your group made this, like, remarkable discovery, which was really pivotal in the, you know, the history of that mountain. Yeah. With the discovery of Mallory's body on the north side. And so I think going from kind of that expedition of, of cultural import to then have people say that they don't really want to stick their heads out to see yeah. the sunset which you appreciate as an amazing sunset there after all the sunsets you've seen yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i can see i can totally relate how that could be like whoa
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it was really maybe
0: I'm a little off the mark
1: yeah really eye-opening yeah. to me and um yeah and so after after that i just you know i kept going back i i was back on everest a few more trips and then uh the, I guess the first time I really realized that vision well was in 2006, put together a trip to a mountain I had wanted to visit for a long time, Gerla Mandata, out in far western Tibet by Kailash. And we just had uh, four clients and very small trip, but really the, the mountain was kind of an afterthought sure it was the genesis of the whole thing, but we spent 44 days in Nepal and Tibet. Uh, I think nine or ten of those was on the mountain. The rest of the time was in one of the most remote districts of Nepal, trekking up the Humla Valley, going on a kora around Mount Kailash mm-hmm. out to the ancient kingdom of Soparong and Gugay and, and then finally to the mountain. And, and so... so
0: was that trip driven by the clients or was this like your, It was a kind of an ideal, like, wow, this is going to be a cool cultural Experience. Is that Yeah, why it was on your radar map for, for a while? Yeah,
1: it was actually, it was two, well, so the mountain first came onto my radar. A friend of mine, uh, one of my best friends from college almost died on it in 97, mm-hmm. uh, ended up sadly losing essentially his hands and feet to mm-hmm. frostbite and uh, survived um, amazingly. But, um, so I, that was the first time I had heard of the peak, but always once I learned of it from him, I was like, wow, that looks like a really cool mountain. It's a huge mountain, 7,700 meters, but, uh, we were actually the 13th team to ever climb it, maybe even less. So there's, nobody has great records on it, but it just never gets visited. And that I had two clients that I taught ice climbing to in urey who wanted to go to a big peak, but they didn't want crowds. They didn't want to go to Choyu. And, uh, and I was like, well, this, you know, it doesn't have the cachet of an 8,000er. It's 7,700, but that's darn close, and we can have a really cool experience if you'll let me, you know, just trust me to, yeah. you know, to build something that's that's bigger than just a climbing trip. And, and they, they were great. They were game, and, and we, you know, saw a lot of a part of the world that um, that at that point had not changed much in hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I asked Jake how he decided to commit to a career transition and go all in to develop his craft as a storyteller. You, you know, I think that, that 99 Mallory and Irvine
1: trip again, kind of opened my eyes a little bit. I, I literally, very literally fell into taking photos on that trip. I, and, and so that kind of, and had a lot published just by good fortune and, yeah. um, And so that kind of opened my eyes to, wow, I I can actually do this. I'm getting to places that are pretty unique and can tell stories through these various mediums. Um, So I I always love that aspect of, of these trips and being able to tell stories and then I guess it all really came to a head for me in in 2009 again back on Everest um, Wonderful expedition, but a a challenging one emotionally for me Um, My daughter was two and a half at the time and uh, you know left her for 75 days and my wife was pregnant with our our second child our son Ryrie and uh and I remember getting on the, onto the summit and, and, you know, theoretically it should have been this wonderful thing. You know, I'm up there with Ed Visters, Pete Whitaker, all great friends. Dave Hong was on the mm-hmm. trip, great team, um, beautiful day. I spent two hours on the summit, you know, everything should have been perfect, but honestly to me, it was kind of this hollow vapid experience. And mm-hmm. that's easy for me to say, cause I'd been on the summit before, but it's still, I I remember looking at the picture of my daughter and my wife that I carried up with me and remembering my daughter asking me two and a half months before, daddy, why do you have to go? And, (laughs) and, you know, there I was two and a half months later, I'm like, I don't really know, you know, a paycheck, was that worth it? And, and, you know, we had seen huge avalanches and the ice fall and, you know, crazy stuff. And it just all hit home for me. Not that it wasn't the reaction that I think people expect where I was like, I'm done with the mountains. It was more that I got to make this meaningful. I've got to have a reason to tell my daughter that I'm gone more than just these pretty selfish reasons of, Oh, I need a paycheck, sweetie. So I'm going to go walk under teetering Syracs for two months or, you know, or I need to take photographs. What, whatever for me, it had to be something more. And um and i knew i couldn't abandon the mountains so that uh, it really forced me to change my own narrative and and mm. and figure out how if and how i could build the self confidence to say you know what you you can go out and tell stories that are important to you and and hopefully important outside of you and then and, uh, and do them some justice and hopefully at, at least attempt to move some needles on, on causes and stories that are important to you yeah. and use the mountains as a vehicle for that storytelling. Yeah. I
0: mean, I imagine there there may be some young filmmakers and photographers that are hoping to do something more meaningful with their work in the same arena, um, but it's it's scary to make that change when your income is coming from going on expedition or shooting for commercial interests. Were you at a fortunate position where you actually felt like you had, um, you had a lot to leverage, like you could always fall back on it while you were exploring these other options. Or did you perceive that moment in time to be kind of a risky thing, kind of risky decision for you in your livelihood?
1: You know, yeah, I, I think a little bit of both. I mean, I, I definitely was in a good position in that I, you know, had, built a pretty solid guiding and photography career at that point i had had and still am uh, a member of the eddie bauer team and so i had some stability which um you know which was huge but it was also definitely scary because you know it wasn't like You know, I was making millions and driving a Mercedes or anything, you know, you know, not many of us do that in this field (laughs) And uh, so I knew it was a big risk and had you know, had a young family and a lot of expenses But I just knew for me. I had to give it a try I had to see all right, can I can I change the way i'm doing things and and will it work and will it resonate because I knew otherwise it just It wasn't going to be meaningful and for me the mountains have to be they had again just for me i'm not trying to imply that that others have to see it the way i do but for me the my time in the mountains had to have more purpose and more meaning than than just climbing up and down them Mm -hmm. what do you
0: see as your first or your your first project that really kind of embodied for you that making that leap that seemed like it was kind of your idea that fit this mold of being meaningful beyond your personal exploit or success in the high mountains.
1: Yeah. You know, the so right. Well, about a year and a half after that 2009 expedition, I, I'd been thinking about this a lot. And, and my, my Achilles heel is not always thinking things through a hundred percent. I, I want to get things done. And, and so I got this idea of, you know because my wife was working in water and sanitation for water for people at the time and and I knew how how important how critical that is from a global human development standpoint and and really felt like that was a a cause an issue that was that I was very passionate about and so I thought all right well I'll start using climbing as as a vehicle because what I had seen on all these Everest trips was we had, you know, tons of money going into them, tons of views, you know, people were, were really engaged with these trips. And at the end of the day, you know, to be crass about it, uh, a bunch of rich guys walked up a hill again. And, and I was like, all right, if we can harness that attention and then say, Hey, guess what tricked you? This isn't really that important, but this is, let's tell this story. Um, then that that would be successful to me and so the yeah. the first trip i did on that front was uh to the Ruwenzori mountains in in uganda um and uh and it was great it was one of the most miserable trips physically i've been <laughs> on it rained almost every day um you know we were up to our our mid thigh and mud um it was just brutal and yet at the same time it it was we were all there to climb for something other than us we were raising money for water for people and helping them launch a big campaign in rwanda uh called everyone where they were really changing the development model in water and sanitation and and uh and we had the CEO of Water for People with us, so it was it was just a really great expedition, and, and, and ended up working pretty well. Um, I think we raised thirty some odd thousand that time, and and, and progressed from there. You so, did Water
0: for People help you kind of. just – just leveraged the platform for that project. Yeah. Largely um, because it was for them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So they helped get the word out. Um, I did a lot of, you know, grassroots work. Uh, my wife did and another friend of ours. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, I, I think the challenge was I hadn't really thought through the whole plan. The idea at that time was to try and climb the triple seven summits and use that as this long-term vehicle for mm-hmm. raising awareness and and my short sightedness, I didn't really th- take into account the fact that, A, there was a big disconnect between a lot of those peaks and the water and sanitation crises. You know, um, Mount Logan, for example, and, um, in Canada, there's not a huge water right. and sanitation issue going on. Right. So there was a storytelling disconnect. And for me as a climber, I'm not not and never have been motivated by summits and and lists and so i never really fully there were some that i was super motivated for others that i was like yeah and time you know,
0: and time 21
1: yeah it's a lot of, <laughs> It's a lot of them are big and yeah yeah so a lot of them are not taking a week maybe. yeah yeah definitely yeah you've got a lot of month two month trips in there mm-hmm. so yeah.
0: did you have a couple other um uh, partner expeditions then with water for people after that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So after the Ruanzori, um I went to went to Orizaba down in Mexico, okay. which was a pretty quick uh, turnaround trip. Then uh uh, another dream trip that I had been um, working with Eddie Bauer on for a long time was the West Ridge trip and to Everest in 2012 to tell the story of Hornbein and Unsold, and we used that the high and as hallowed well. Film. Yeah, mm-hmm. High and Hallowed. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we used that as as also another fundraising trip for water oh, you did. for people. So oh, you did. it was okay. yeah, it was a little bit. How of did both. you?
0: Um, how did you? Because I've seen the film. So what uh, did you do? Like a separate film project, or did you? Uh, do some awareness about sanitation water issues on the approach in Kumbu? Or, yeah, that or was the
1: main it? thing um, as as we were approaching, and then while I was on the mountain, um, we, I was just talking about the issues and what Water for People was up to, and continuing to use people's engagement as a platform to talk about about the situation and and direct them if they felt like it to to keep giving. Okay. So,
0: and that was like through your personal platform, or were you actually um, was Water for People? did you provide a film for them or was it just like dispatches or yeah
1: it was just dispatches from the field eddie bauer was great and really helped push uh push that as as you know as as a mouthpiece for us as well um Mm -hmm. but there were we were so busy filming and photographing for high and hallowed there wasn't much uh much energy left to shoot anything else so yeah yeah but i
0: mean I, i think it's and so, I mean, did, did Water for People feel like that was a value for them? I and mean, Did it raise some money for them? Did, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. When it was all said and done after, what, two years or so, mm-hmm. we had raised a little over 300000 for them. So it was, you know, not not yeah. the couple million I'd hoped for initially, but, but still a, a good raise. And still. I mean, yeah. I think
0: it shows, like, again, like you said, you did, like, leveraging the uh, the – kind of the allure, the mystique, the visual kind of engagement of something like the Everest region yeah, um, for another cause. And I think the other interesting thing about that model is a lot of people do have that struggle of like, okay, how do I create, how do I mesh this, this one film project or this one climb I want to do and also make it meaningful and have that narrative work for both right. like in your storytelling. And, that, and I had no idea that you did that for high and hollowed, you know, I would have assumed that it was just for that. Cause that's a lot of work on its own. Right. But it means yeah. uh, side projects are possible. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. definitely.
1: Yeah. And yeah. often, often they, yeah, they find a life of their own within the, uh, the overall project. And yeah. yeah. And uh yeah. And it was after that Everest trip that, um, and and the film High and Hallowed, seeing that oh wow, actually I I can shoot video too. This is working, and it was the first film I had full film that I had really been a part of and an active. Oh, is it right? Okay, yeah, uh-huh. I had shot before and been a part of you know still photographer for a lot of film projects, but I had never really actively shot motion before or gotten involved in in telling a story from start to finish and. And uh, still didn't have a great deal of confidence in it, but knew that this idea of the 777 summits wasn't resonating fully with me. It wasn't, mm-hmm. didn't really fully have legs, but I still wanted to keep telling the water story. But I, I, I also wanted to tie mountains to the water crisis and the water issues that are faced all over the
0: world. With that goal in mind, our conversation turns to how the collaboration with Pete McBride began. And how Holy Unholy River, the BAMF award-winning film, came to be. And uh, through chance, happened to meet Pete
1: McBride when his film Chasing Water came out. I was yeah. a judge at Five Points that year. Oh, okay. and, and so we connected and we're like, oh yeah, maybe we should do a trip together, figure something out. And, um, and I had already had quasi plans to go to mount kenya and pete was interested he had been there before and so we we're like all right let's you know let's team up and figure out a story we can tell and so we went in
0: maybe you fill in some people at uh, uh, pete's background and and kind of i mean not only who he is professionally what he's known for but he yeah, has a conservation ethic as well yeah then, yeah
1: pete's yeah he's an amazing guy grew up uh in the roaring fork valley on a ranch um on a river that ends up flowing into the colorado and uh and has done incredible stories all around the world but his real big break at least in the in the water field what he's most well known for now is uh came with this film chasing water when he had never made a film before he was this amazing still photographer and ended up Uh, with john waterman following um the colorado to where it just dries up down in the desert and and did an amazing you know very gritty beautiful film called chasing water and and now gosh he's he's like the guy on the colorado and the grand canyon has done spent more days in there than most so so what what did you
0: guys put together for mount kenya after that
1: yeah, you know as as Pete and I as our projects often go, we um we didn't have a fully we didn't have a concrete plan going into it. We knew that Kenya truly is a water tower in East Africa. Um it and its surrounding mountains are incredibly important um and supply some estimates say up to 70% of Kenya's fresh water. So incredibly important, but we didn't know exactly how that story was going to come together. So we, we went to Mount Kenya, um, shot the heck out of it, tried to climb it, got, uh, got stormed off just below the summit, um, which actually played in because later on as we went up to the Samburu lands up, um, in Samburu National Reserve, talking to the elders there they were they were talking about the the belief of ngai the the god who dwells in in mount kenya and being associated with water and a lot of the connections and uh Mm -hmm. and so we were able to put together a a fun film called the water tower that that really talks about mount kenya and it's and it's water issues and it's Mm -hmm. how essential it is to the nation and uh Unfortunately, we got along well and worked well together, so that led to led to more projects down the
0: line. Right, which was the Ganges would that have been the next, the Holy Unholy? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, so after six months later, the Water Tower, we were at a film festival, wild and scenic, out in uh, California. Mm-hmm. And there had been another film on the Ganges done that, um, and we had both had interactions with the Ganges on literally different ends of the river and both were fascinated by it and how, what a dichotomous waterway it is. And, and uh, we saw this film and we're like, gosh, it would be so cool to go and really try and tell the story of this river in both a scientific way and a philosophical way and get to kind of unearth some of its conundrums. And uh, so that that led to a big trip in fall of 2013.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was fascinating. And some accolades that you earned last year, too, as well, at Banff Film. It was Environmental yeah. uh, Award winner for the Banff Film Festival yeah. last year, right? Yeah, it yeah. was.
1: Yeah, so that was a, a huge honor, a big surprise to yeah. us, but, um, but a, a nice honor.
0: I think what was most fascinating with me about that movie is uh, it's engaging, and yet... There's still no answer.
1: <laughs> you yeah. mentioned
0: dichotomy, and I can't make any more sense of it than, you know, Yeah. after watching your film as before. I mean, certainly I learned some issues, and there are some really shocking moments in that. I, I forget if, if, if she was a river eco- ecologist, or, but she essentially talked about how districts are renaming tributaries to drains.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sunita Narayan, yeah. who's
0: a top environmentalist
1: in India and in a powerhouse. And, yeah, I mean, just that... That segment, as we were sitting with her, is, is so powerful. Yeah, yeah. That literally, in on government maps, these once rivers are now called drains, and they're literally just choked with sewage. Yeah. And and yeah, it's it's there are no easy answers for it. And, and what I loved is, and I think Pete did too, is that there were these mysteries that about the river that that don't really answer they're not answerable. Like, um, you know, we'd be in sections where the river was pretty much dead. Um, and then a little ways downstream, less far downstream than you would anticipate, the river was relatively healthy again. And it wasn't like there had been a big influx of water from a relatively clean river from Nepal or something. This was, you know, the river managing to clean itself, which, you know, maybe there there is something... Magical about the Ganga, but um, but it can only survive for so long with yeah. the with the amount of pollution and and um, disruption it's having these days.
0: So are you guys inspired anything next or what's what's uh, the latest do you think?
1: Uh, well Pete now is really engaged in um, in a big film project uh, so he and Kevin Fedarko another Grand Canyon great who wrote the Emerald Mile they did mm. uh, yeah. an on foot transect of the canyon what a year ago or oh, so okay. and so he's working on a film on mm-hmm. that because obviously the canyon has a lot of threats going on these days yeah. Um, Thank,
0: thankfully just dodged one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it
1: did. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. Knock on wood. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we finish by talking about what lies ahead and Jake leaves behind some advice for the future generation of storytellers.
1: I'm, I'm just always looking to find engaging new stories, uh, preferably in the Himalaya. Cause that's, that's where my heart always yeah. lies. And, and uh, back to that trip, Gurla Mandata in 2006, when we trekked up the Humla Valley, that was incredible. It's so, and especially then, it was so far out there in Nepal. But there's another valley that goes off just before the Tibetan border and kind of parallels it called Limi Valley. And uh, we gazed into it from one of the passes. I was like, gosh, it'd be cool to cool to get in there someday. And so I'm looking at a trip to get in um into that valley hopefully uh, perhaps this spring if mm-hmm. i can pull it together but it's it's a unique place in that it is truly the end of the road it's one of the more remote places left in the himalaya um there's no walkable roadhead within about um 10 days very hard to penetrate um, it's got a very traditional tibetan culture a little bit of, of infusion from from the southland so you've got a very small population living in very rustic conditions and yet roads are starting to poke down from china and the salt caravans are now carrying cell phones and gore tex and you know knockoff north face and all different different things and so it's changing super fast very drastically and it's also an area that um My understanding is some of the most rapid glacial recession is happening in that overall massif of Gurlamandata and the surrounding peaks. So it's it's an area there's a big uh, glacial lake that partially burst and almost took out an 11th century gompa. back in 2011 I believe it was mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of issues uh being faced up there so I'd love to
0: and like likely to be some good oral history yeah to into
1: yeah definitely mm-hmm. and that you know to me seeing these places preserving some of what they are before they change completely is is really important in mm-hmm. telling the stories of of these remote areas and and the thing is that we stand to lose if if we don't uh
0: don't wake up to some of the issues yeah. facing our world. Right? Well, it's important. I, yeah, and we were talking about this before. I think even one would argue even more impactful is to actually show how quickly they are changing. I mean, it's it's wonderful to show how much they have not changed yet, but uh uh this concept of the canary in the coal mine like here is a, is a small community that is being impacted so rapidly. Yeah. I'm like this is, and you get the oral history. You see the photographs, you see the videos, the testimonials. Yeah, and you realize it's happening all over the
1: world. Yeah, yeah, and I find you know we can read and debate the science as much as we want. And I'm a very much a believer in science, but I think like many non scientists, a lot of it goes so far over my head that I just. You know, I believe it, but it's I can't digest it. I can't yeah. understand what a million-year-old glacial core and the carbon cycle everything means. Um, but when I hear, you know, an 80-year-old person in Leamy Valley talking about how, oh, when I was a kid, we could see the glacier from this village, and now you have to walk a day and a half to be able to see it. Well, that's real. That... That tells us, all right, th- this isn't a joke. This has been in one lifetime, and I remember hearing that from the baganjo in in the Ruinsori. One elder in his mid eighties was like, "Yeah, as a kid, we could go up and get ice, and we could make the round trip in in half a day to get ice from the glaciers of the Ruinsori. Now we have to walk two days just to get to them, and mm-hmm. you know, and that that's real. And those to me are the stories, like you said, the canary in the coal mine. You can't. You can't debate a true story. Um, it's easier to debate science. It's even though I don't believe in that, but but you can. People try yeah. and debate science, but it's much harder to debate uh, an anecdote or, or a, a, a story that somebody is recounting from their personal
0: history. Right. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, I do want to be respectful of your time. You got to pick up the kiddos here soon. But um, just in closing, I guess I, I imagine you're at a point too that you're you're not only meeting, but you're thinking about the next generation of story story storytellers after your time um, that are following in your footsteps, what do you worry about for them or what do you hope for them? Uh, Because it's not, I think you now know looking through the retrospective scope (laughs) at your career, like it's not easy, right? Yeah. And the reality is, is you probably spend 80, 90% of your time in this room than actually out on expedition, right? So there's that, there's the planning, there's the fundraising, there's the editing, but you've definitely created really important stories and I think they are quite engaging and it has brought attention to these issues. And that's something that is going to always be an important part of your legacy and something to be proud of. And I think there is a young generation out there that, that wants that for themselves too. A lot of times I get questions coming from a place of like, I just don't feel legitimate to talk about this yet. Or I'm, you know, there, there's that risk calculation. Like, I don't make any money doing this. Right. Do you have any words of encouragement for that that group, or what would you hope for the next generation
1: yeah i mean my my feeling is you know yeah it's it's not easy it's not you're not gonna make a ton of money right off the bat. You may actually spend a lot of money right off the bat but but there's incredible experiences to be had. I think there's a growing market and appetite for this type of storytelling you know I think the the traditional expedition film, um, just like the ski industry has gone through. I think it's getting a little, little old from the consumer mindset. People want more. They want these stories. They want to engage with it. And I think there is a market out there. And so I would encourage people, you know, get, get that idea and, and go for it and don't be so married to it that you can't let it adapt as it goes along. But, but what I've found too is that doing this engages in it engaging in it opens you up to this whole new audience and and has also driven a lot more work my way tangentially it's not always a direct connection so most of my films i've made only a few pennies or lost a lot out of but it's led to other work that has helped pay the bills and and you know i think that's that's the way the game works and um but it's it's Incredibly important to tell these stories and and engage and and spread the things that we're passionate about and the the messages that we all need to tell because we're seeing them out there in the hills all the time. Yeah, we need to share them.
0: Yeah, and I'm preaching to the choir over here. Yeah, agree. yeah. So thanks for doing what you do, and we'll certainly all. Share your work up to date uh, on the site and hopefully we can inspire some other people. Yeah, next well, thank you. storytellers. Well, this is awesome. Yeah, yes, yes. meet you. I love what
1: you're doing. Keep <laughs> it up. Thanks, Jake. <laughs> All right, cool.
0: Okay, well, once again, I'd like to thank Jake Norton for his time. To learn more about his amazing body of work, check out mountainworldproductions.com, follow him on Instagram at mountainworld, or on Twitter at Jake Norton. Coming up, I'll be part of the Five Point Film Festival in Carbondale come April. Stay tuned for specifics, but till that time, if any of you happen to be there or have someone else you'd like me to talk to, send me a note. I'm always down for another engaging conversation. And thanks to Evan Phillips for the wonderful interlude music you enjoyed here. We connected through his podcast, The Fern Line. Please check out his podcast or even better, purchase some of his music on iTunes. And thanks for listening to episode seven. We hope you've been with us from the beginning, but if not, check out the other episodes on our site, on iTunes or SoundCloud. If you have just a few spare minutes, give us a good review, share with your friends. Your show of support means so much. Thanks all and keep adventuring.